Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation. The book of Revelation is the last book in your Bible. Easy to find. We're going to be in chapter 2 and chapter 3 this morning. And as you're turning there, we'll pray. Father God, thank you so much for the privilege we have to look at your word today. I pray you would fill me with your spirit as I attempt to teach and preach from these passages. And I pray all of us would think about the question before us today. As Lord, we enter upon a new year and a new decade. I pray, Father, you just give wisdom. Speak to us. Break our hearts if need be. Help us. Change us. Make us what we ought to be for you today. I pray your word would be as a hammer today, breaking us in pieces where it's needed. And I just pray that you would just speak to our hearts. I thank you, Lord, for the examples of these churches. and pray we could apply them to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. We are starting today on a new year. The first Lord's Day, is it not, in 2018? And that's an important milestone. And we always think about that um, you know, when we start a new year. All kinds of things come to mind. But it's, it's far more important than that to me and I think to us as a church because today also marks the start of a new decade together. At least for me. It was the first Lord's Day in 2007. When I first came here. How many of you were here then? How many were in that service? That's what I thought. I didn't think. There's only one or two that I could think would be possibly a part of that first service. We have one fellow who's been coming the last couple of weeks who would have been able to raise his hand today, but that would probably have been it. And Debbie might have been able to raise her hand if she was here with us this morning. But uh, So it's been ten years. And now we stand at the precipice of not only a new year, but a new decade together. And as I've thought about these things, obviously these things have been bubbling around in my mind, and a question has been bubbling around in my mind as a result, and of course you know what that means, it's soon going to be bubbling around in yours. And that question is, what kind of a church shall we be in these days yet to come? What kind of church shall we be? And of course we could go to all kinds of uh, Bible bookstores and pull books off the shelves and try to answer that question, but no place can we go that's going to give us better instruction about what the church is and what the church should be than the Word of God. It tells us of the church's creation on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It tells us of its subsequent amazing growth under the preacher of, pe- preaching of Peter and, and Paul and others. The letters written by Peter and Paul and James and John in the New Testament are largely written to churches and explaining and describing what the church ought to be. Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus especially are helpful, as they are, at least from a pastor's perspective, for he wrote to these men as pastors, instructing them in various things about church life. But then there's the book of Revelation, the very last book in our Bible. It tells of the future of the church, it tells of its rapture, it tells of its eternity. And it also has this interesting section that I want to look at today, which describes seven very real and very specific churches. Brother Carl's teaching on Revelation shortly. And when he teaches on Revelation, I believe he will talk about these things, uh, at least partially, as being illustrative of periods of time in church history. Is that right, Brother Carl? Don't you do that? Yeah. And that's a valid and a good way to do it, and I, I, I recommend his class to you. But I don't want to do it that way today. I want to look at these churches today uh, as exactly what they were, churches. They were real. They existed. They had pastors. They had people. 
And this particular passage of Scripture that we're going to look at is Jesus dictating letters to the angels of those churches and giving them both his commendations and his rebukes and describing some things about them that's helpful to us today. He wrote to the angels of the churches. That's an interesting word. It basically means pastors. He wrote to the pastors. Do I look like an angel to you? Uh, the word angel in the Bible has a very specific meaning when we apply it to that group of beings, those angelic beings that we always think of when we use that word. But it also has a generic meaning. It just means messenger. And it's used that way sometimes in the Bible. And so here, uh, most scholars would say that the angel of the church, it's singular in each church. It's the pastor of that church. And so we're given a glimpse into what Jesus thought of these local churches. And that's what I want to examine today. And as we ponder the next decade together, and as we ask the question, what kind of a church shall Friendship Bible Church be? Now, we're going to do a lot of reading today. I I saw an awful lot of hands go up a minute ago, which made me want to shout and praise the Lord when our brother asked how many brought your Bibles today. So that means right now when I say uh, we're going to do a lot of reading, you're all going to be looking down, right, at the copy of Scripture that's in your lap, because we're going to read about these seven churches. So turn with me, first of all, to Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1, and we'll read about the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Here was a church at Ephesus, Ephesus was a great city, and the church of Ephesus was one of the greatest of the New Testament churches. John the Apostle pastored there. Paul and Timothy also were leaders there at certain times. And at the time Jesus dictated this letter to the Ephesian church, it had been a church for probably 40 years and had been faithful. And at the conclusion of those 40 years standing for Jesus, he had a lot of good things to say. But he also had something bad to say. In spite of all the good things Jesus had to say about it, we'll talk about some of the good things in a minute, but he had this to say. He said they had left their first love. Verse number four, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, what do you suppose that means? What is your first love? Warren Wiersbe explains it like this. He says, what is first love? It is the devotion to Christ that so often characterizes the new believer, fervent personal, uninhibited, excited, and openly displayed. It is the honeymoon love of the husband and wife. And while it is true that mature married love deepens and grows richer, it is also true that it should never lose the excitement and wonder of those honeymoon days. When a husband and wife begin to take each other for granted and life becomes routine, then the marriage is in danger. And and Jesus said to this church at Ephesus that they had left Now, we oftentimes misquote this particular passage. I've heard people preach this, and I've heard people quote this as they had lost their first love. But that's not what Jesus said. They didn't lose it. They left it. To lose something is an accident. 
I lose things all the time, more and more, every single day. Sometimes I can lose something from one room to the next. But that's not what he said here. Losing is an accident. Leaving your first love is, at least to a certain extent, intentional. Verse number 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Here we have the church at Smyrna, persecuted, suffering. And yet Jesus mentioned absolutely nothing negative about that. I think that's wonderful. He even said that in spite of their outward destitution and poverty, they were, they were rich. One man said they lived for eternal values that would never change, riches that could never be taken away. So rather than admonish them for some deficiency as with the other churches, he admonished them to keep on in spite of their trials. Do not fear, for I know what's happening and what will happen, and you will be all right. That's what he said to them. And I think it's a wonderful word to all of us who go through such times. Verse number 12. Verse number 12 to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Here we have the church at Pergamos. Pergamos, they tolerated and gave place to those who taught error and false doctrine. But this church was not blatantly teaching false doctrine. But they had some there who were, and they tolerated their presence, and they allowed their teaching. And it was a very particular brand of false teaching. I think we would more accurately label it compromising. I think it's interesting that Balaam's name is mentioned. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Balaam this morning, but, but he was all about compromise. You can read about him more. Uh, in, in the book of Numbers, but he, he believed in getting people to compromise a little bit in one area, and you can get them to fall completely. You can get them to compromise in other areas. Read about him, Numbers chapters 22 and through 25, and you can find that out. He was a prophet for hire. He led people to believe it was right to compromise with evil. He got God's people to cave into the world's ways on seemingly small issues, and that eventually led to their complete downfall. According to Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, at one point, 24,000 people died. Because of the influence of Balaam. And that's the way the Pergamos church seemed to be going. With their compromise regarding false teaching. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. 
These things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works." Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also received from my father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira. These believers, these believers uh, tolerated a false teacher who promoted idolatry, resulting in immorality, uh, not, not promoted idolatry, I'm sorry, promoted immorality, resulting in that being practiced even within the church. One man said no amount of loving and sacrificial works can compensate for tolerance of evil. And God had given this church and this person, who's referred to here as Jezebel, I don't believe that was really the name. It was a description. But he'd given this person in this church time to repent. His act of grace was ignored. They didn't do it. I wonder how many of us sometimes, when we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit on our life, we know we need to repent, and we don't do it. I wonder if that's an illustration of this. Chapter 3, verse number 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. That you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis. So little that needs to be said about this. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. A reputation for life but inwardly dead. I can't imagine a worse rebuke for a church. I don't even know what else to say about the church of Sardis with that. He said, you, are, you say you're alive, you think you're alive, you act like you're alive, but inside you're dead. Verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, 
I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here was the church at Philadelphia, faithful, persevering. Jesus had absolutely nothing negative to say about this particular church. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That was the case. He was writing a letter to us and would have nothing negative to say. He had given them an open door, indicating they had opportunity for service and for ministry and for evangelism. And then finally we come to verse 14, the last of the seven, the church at Laodicea. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know your works, that you are neither cold Hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What a letter to receive. This church was the lukewarm, wishy-washy, self-satisfied church that Jesus said literally made him sick. You make me want to vomit. And perhaps none of the descriptions of these seven churches fit the 21st century American church, more maybe than this one. What kind of a church will we be? Will we be a church that makes our Savior nauseous? Lord, I hope not. This church had become so self-satisfied, seemingly needing nothing, that the Lord himself described himself as being outside the door. Did you notice that in verse number 20? We oftentimes use that verse as an apply it to salvation, but that's not what it's talking about. He says, I'm outside the door. I'm standing at the door. Let me back in. They were blind to their true state, thinking themselves successful, and they were just the opposite. So there's the seven churches. And there's the things primarily that Jesus rebuked about the seven churches, the things that were wrong. But as we try to ask ourselves the question of uh, what shall our church be, can we maybe use these churches as a standard? Can we maybe use these churches as an example that we might try to determine what shall our church be? And I think if we're going to do that, we probably should look at what they did right. Because that's what we ought to be aiming for. We ought to avoid all those things. We also ought to be aiming for the things that he commended. So let's think about some of those just briefly. At Ephesus, he commended uh, these people for their labor. 
literally to the point of exhaustion. That word labor that's used there at the church of Ephesus literally means that you've, you've served to the point of exhaustion. This was a busy and a working church. He commended them for their perseverance, their hatred of evil, their testing of teachers and rejecting those promoting error. He commended them for not quitting. And even implied in his admonition that they had left their first love is the obvious thought that they must have had it in the first place. So implied even in his is a rebuke of them as a commendation of their love. Paul had earlier described their love. He said, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. He said that in the opening verses of his letter to this church. Jesus commanded the church at Smyrna for staying true in the midst of trial and need and suffering. Jesus commended the church at Pergamos for staying true in a culture that is violently opposed to the faith. Satanic, it was, it was referred to as here, even to the point of killing Christians. Jesus commended the church at Thyatira for service and love and faith and perseverance. And he said their service was so strong he had to mention it twice. He didn't have much good to say about Sardis. But he did commend a remnant among them that remained faithful, even in the midst of a church that was dead. He commended the church at Philadelphia for their strength, even if it was only a little bit, for their faithfulness to his word and to his name. Didn't have anything good to say about Laodicea. Didn't commend a thing there, so there's nothing we can learn there. So those are the good things. So let's apply all this now, the bad and the good. Let's apply it to our church and ask ourselves, what kind of a church shall we be? Let's ask all those questions of ourselves. How is our love? How is our love? How is our love for one another? How is our love for God? How do we at Friendship Bible Church handle trials? Do we persevere or do we quit? How serious are we concerning true versus false doctrine? Are we strong enough to say no to compromise? Even when it just seems to be just a little bit of compromise. When an error is pointed out to us, when false doctrine or evil practices are discovered and pointed out, do we repent of it? Or are we too proud for that? Are we alive? Are we as alive as we once were? Or are we dying? Do we see the open door that is before us? Are we taking advantage of it or just letting it stand there open? And are we on, on fire as we once were? Has the fire cooled? I think those are all valid questions that help us to determine what kind of a church we shall be. And, and I would like to spend just a moment in, in closing this morning answering them. Uh, from my perspective as the angel of the church at Randolph. So let me, let me just think about a few of those. How is our love for one another? Well, I, I love the way our church lives up to the friendship part of its name. I love the fact that people seem to love each other. Last evening was a wonderful example of that. Those of you who were here to kind of send Todd off uh, with almost no notice of that, because it was kind of a last-minute Yet the fellowship hall was filled with people showing their love for him. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And many, many in this church have experienced that in your own life. You've experienced how this church will come around you and uh, show the love of Christ when you need it. I experienced it when Josh had cancer. The Lord took Beth. It's been there for many of you. 
church is a loving church. And I'll, I would never say we're perfect in this area, but I do believe it's a strong point. But then what about our love for God? Because that was not the, the rebuke to the church at Ephesus was not about leaving their love for each other. It was about leaving their love for God, their first love. How are we doing there? I look across this room and I see brothers and sisters who love the Lord. I think most of you love the Lord. Do you love the Lord? Well, that was weak. But the idea that we might leave our first love, even if we had as, as a very strong point before, it, it's something for us to consider. It's a warning for us to think through, a danger to never forget, a warning to sit up and take notice of whether we think it applies to us or not. When I first was saved, uh, I, I got a copy of the Bible. I don't remember where it came from. I remember that it was a living Bible. and uh, I remember that uh, as I started reading it, I was all excited to read it and and somebody told me, I can't remember if it was my pastor or who, but you ought to underline verses in the Bible that are important to you, young Christian. I was in my teens. And I look back on that Bible now, and I tried to find it this morning. I was going to show it to you. I think I've showed it to you before, but uh, I took a red pen, and I underlined verses that were important to me. But the interesting thing is I was a brand-new Christian. Every verse was important to me. And I would look at that now and, Whole paragraphs, sometimes whole pages, would be underlined in red. Because in those early days, everything God said was precious and everything was meaningful. And all of us need to ask ourselves, as we think about this rebuke to the Ephesian church, if we love Jesus as much as we did ten years ago. If we love Jesus as much as we did even when we first started attending here. If the honeymoon is over respect to our relationship with him. Let it not be so. Let us not leave our first love as a church. We need to repent, we need to repent maybe, and do the first works and be on fire as we were earlier. We, remember, we need to remember what it was like to love Jesus that much. Let us not be guilty of leaving our first love. I don't think that we are, but I think it's a danger. Another question is, how do we handle trials? I look back over ten years here, and I can see some who have gone through some serious hardships. I can think of some who went through things, and they're not with us anymore. They didn't make it. They gave up, or they fell away, or they were chopped down by that trial. But then I look around this room, and I see others, though, who have gone through terrible things. And you're still here. You might be bleeding. You might be wounded. You might be scarred. You might be broken in ways that nobody in this room knows. But you're still here. And you're still standing. And that, church, is what we need to see in one another. That is what we need to be as a church. As we embark on a new decade together, we we, we need to remember afresh what Paul told Timothy, to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of church we need to be. Standing. Having done all. Stand. How serious are we concerning false teaching? That's another question. And when I think about that, my mind goes back instantly to an issue that occurred here, right here in this particular pulpit. Some of you may remember this very, very well. We had a missionary who came here. And uh, he's a good missionary. We, we, we thought good things of him. But he stood here and he preached something. He preached that he did not believe that the creation story in the 
Old Testament in Genesis that creation actually occurred in six literal 24-hour days. He said, "That's just I just can't believe that, and so I don't teach that and preach that. Preach that from this pulpit. Three things immediately happened. First of all, he did that during Sunday school. And I was sitting in the back, and I was thrilled to watch as people leaped almost to their feet, frothing at the mouth, questioning him about this very thing. And he had to undergo quite a barrage of questions about that particular stand. That was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened is my phone rang off the hook for the next 48 hours. My inbox was full for the next 48 hours. And then the third thing that happened is that I had to address it the following Sunday and teach that, no, 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 we do believe what the Bible says, that creation took place in six literal 24-hour days. And that reaction is not a one-time event. Several times I've had people come marching up to me. I'm still standing here taking my mic off, and people come running up here, holding up their Bible and saying, Preacher, what, what, what about this? And trying to argue with something that I said. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes I have learned from their correction. Usually they're wrong. <laughs> and they have learned from mine. But sometimes. The fact is, to all of this, I say praise the Lord. I pray this is always a point of strength in our church, that we will not tolerate false teaching. Not even a little bit. Not from this pulpit, not from any Sunday school class, not from any Bible study, not from anything that has to do with Friendship Bible Church. That we will hold our teachers accountable. That we will be like the Berean believers who listened eagerly to Paul's message and then searched the scriptures day after day to see if what they were saying was the truth. And I pray our hatred of that false teaching extends even to the very tiniest areas of compromise. Not just as a blatant teaching from the pulpit, but let's determine no pressure of our godless culture, no ravings of social media, no degeneracy of those who proclaim to be learned and learned in our society will cause us to doubt the truth which we hold to. If we are to be the church that our Savior commends rather than rebukes, we need to know what the truth is, and this is it. We need to hold to this and this alone. The psalmist said, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. No compromise on the truth can be uh, tolerated, not even for a little bit, whether that compromise comes from science or so-called educators or culture or popular opinion or anything else, anything that would try to make us change our position the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Another question. Do we see the open door that is before us? Randolph is burning as we speak. Rootstown, Mogador, Kent, Ravenna, Akron, Alliance, it doesn't matter where. We are sitting here in the midst, surrounded by a huge crowd that is blindly plunging like lemmings toward hell, mostly oblivious to their state. And God has put us here in the midst of it. And we know the way. And the door stands open. And the fields are ripe for the harvest. And the question is, do we see it? I believe some do. I also believe more should. Some of us spend all our time and effort on worldly pursuits that are not only of no eternal value, but encourage others to 
ignore things that are of eternal value. I'm going to say something right now which will probably empty the church, but I hope that doesn't happen. Our teen ministry right now is at a low ebb, and it's at least to a large extent because parents would rather encourage their kids to play sports rather than pursue godliness. Parents would rather their kids develop friendships outside of the church rather than inside the church. And I have to tell you something, folks, as your pastor. I've been here 10 years, and uh, I guess I can say something now. As your pastor, there's almost nothing that frustrates me more than seeing parents who actively work to send their kids to hell. And I'm sorry, that's what I think is being done. More parents have that mindset today than I think any time in the history that I can remember. Parents will arrange their entire lives to fit into a sports schedule. They will not get up one hour early for Sunday school. Parents will rearrange everything about their whole schedule. They will not bring them to a teen activity. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. We need to pray about that one. Because that's a big one. Are we alive? Are we dying? Are we dead? How hot are we as a church? Are we cold? Are we hot? Are we lukewarm? Are we a church that makes our dear Savior sick? Oh, I think we're alive. I think for the most part, we're very alive. But I also believe we've cooled. In ten years, I think we've cooled a bit. I have to confess to you that as your pastor, I'm tired. And if I'm tired, I believe you are too. I believe that probably is rolling right downhill. So here's what I pray for. I pray for revival. I pray for fire. I pray for heat. I pray for life. And I pray you would pray it with me. Because if we're going to be the church God wants us to be, we need that. Let us not drift. Let us not cool. Let us not have a name that we live, but are dead. May it never be. Well, so as we embark on our second decade together, let us determine right now what kind of a church we're going to be. And let us work hard to not be uh, involved in any of those areas we know Jesus would rebuke. Let us think about all those things that he commanded and strive for those as the standard to which we would attain. Jesus said, and we need to remember this, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let us be the church that Jesus commands because such a church cannot be defeated. It can crush the very gates of hell. Nothing can stop us if we are the church that Jesus wants us to be. Nothing can stop us if we are in step with the Savior. So may we be that church. And where we are not, let us remember one last thing from these passages that we read, and that's the corrective formula he gave to those seven churches. Whenever they got astray, the formula was pretty much the same. He said in verse number 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Remember, repent, do the first works.